Thank you, Jacob. What a blessing it is to be with you and to be worshiping together. I love just um, being a part of that corporate worship where we just join in. It's the joy of being together. It's part of what defines the church is fellowship and the worship and the time in the Word. And so uh, thank you for being here. If, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I hope this is not the first time you've opened it this week. If it is, you're starving this morning. The Lord has designed His Word for you to be taking it in each day. Many of us would not even think about missing multiple days of regular physical meals and suffering the hardship that would come from that, but instead uh, we do that spiritually and then have the same hardship. We just don't recognize it as such. And so let's not be emaciated in our study of the Word. Be in it each day. Make that your habit, your point to, to start your day or end your day that way. And the blessings and the encouragement and the strength will follow as you take in those meals. Instructions for the church for teaching, leading, and equipping is our study. For the past three weeks, we've been looking at a section of our study that deals with the topic of relating to those who lead the church. And over the course of our study through this letter, we've seen much instruction to Timothy on how to deal with the current leadership in Ephesus. And in fact, all through the Pauline epistles, we see much of the same thing happening in the church. Uh, the same thing is going on now. False teachers abounded in the early church. They abound now. Church leaders turning away from qualifications. Then they do that now. The standards, the instruction and sound doctrine, how to go about teaching, they turned away from it then. They turn away from it now. And as we've seen here in Paul's letter to Timothy as he pastors this established Ephesian church, planted by Paul but already far from where they should be, the main problem here is an issue of leadership. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he gives some more guidelines for biblical eldership, namely how the church is to relate to them in a number of different scenarios. And, and we will see, and we've already begun to see, uh, how the church is supposed to deal with elders. And we saw they're to honor them. We saw that we will see that they are to protect them, to discipline them, and, and some more insight on how to select them. And so we've seen already elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers, have been placed inside the church to serve the church underneath the great shepherd. They are called to equip the church and the saints for the works of ministry. And as it has always been, many problems inside the church as a whole can be tracked back to the problems of leadership. False teaching still at work, more and more unqualified, uncalled men in pulpits along with women. And so the church waxes and wanes depending on leadership. And so this is a recurring theme from the Holy Spirit all the way back to the Old Testament. It's just as rel uh, relational now and relative as it, it was at that time. And so we saw from verses 17 and 18, just as a review, you can look there. Uh, principle number one, we saw the first way the church is to deal with elders that are qualified, elders that are serving as they should, as they're to deal with them with honor. It's in the imperative. It is a command to Paul, from Paul to Timothy for the church to do that. Principle number two, we saw from verses 17 and 18, it is a twofold honor of respect and remuneration. And we saw all the passages that connect to that. We understand we have a sound understanding of that. If you've missed any of that, you can go back on Spotify, listen to all those, and get all that background and that homework. And then uh, principle number three, we saw just to sum up those two verses, all elders who do a good job, that's not subjective. There's objective standards, and as they, uh, as they align with those standards, overseeing the church are worthy of honor in both aspects. All elders 
but particularly those who serve and work hard in preaching and teaching. As we saw, those are the most important things that an elder is to do inside the church. Part of the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 is he has to be apt to teach. He has to have the ability to teach and communicate the Word of God inside the gifting the Holy Spirit has given the individual man so that the church is benefited. And then we get now to verses 19 through 21, which is our new section. And these really flow out of the first two verses. It's really the shoe leather connected to honoring, and it comes by way of protection. Let's lead, read through the passage, if you would. Look at um, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19, and we'll read through verse 21 today. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. Let's stop right there. Two men worked on a large ocean-going vessel. One day, the mate, who normally did not drink, became intoxicated. The captain, who hated him, entered into the daily log, quote, mate, drunk today, end quote. He knew that this was a first offense, but he wanted to get him fired. The mate was aware of his evil intent and begged him to change the record. The captain, however, replied, quote, it is a fact, and into the log it goes, end quote. A few days later, the mate was keeping the log and, and concluded it with this, Captain, sober today. Realizing the implications of the statement, the captain asked that it be removed and replied, the mate said, it's a fact, and in the log it stays. One of the hardships of life is having someone misrepresent you, or worse, actually slander you or tell an untruth or a partial truth about you. It's an issue everyone has to deal with in life, some more than others. In our new section of relating to pastors and elders, we move into this whole matter of protecting them, ensuring their safe and proper treatment, insulating them from this very kind of thing that we saw in the illustration. After all, it's really axiomatic to say that pastors are often the topic in the church. There are always things floating around about them. The church leaders are highly visible and can be vulnerable to the adverse actions of the disorderly and the malicious and the ill-willed and the whispering types of gossip. And drastically subject to the human tendency to believe the worst which sadly persists even in the church. And so Paul wants to make sure that Timothy, who will certainly be impacted by all of these principles, is protected as well. And some of the things that can float around about the pastor elder happen for any number of reasons. And so what I'll do is give you some anecdotal types of evidence in 30 years. These are the kinds of things that I've experienced. And there are other things, of course, and they're mixed together. But these are the kinds of things that typically happen. Some people will just resent their position. It doesn't really matter who stands here. They just resent the person who's over the church. It's always a, a curiosity to me that I come into, and this is the third church the Lord has allowed me to pastor as a senior pastor, come into a church and find people who really do hate the overseers, and yet they still remain in the church. It's interesting to me that they, if they hate the church that much and they hate those who oversee the church, why they remain, but they do. Some people just carry around a lot of resentment. 
Uh, they pass it off on perhaps they got hurt by somebody or somebody did something to them or whatever it is. Some elder said something that hurt their feelings. They, they use it to justify their feelings. But, and it may be personal like that. It may be general, just a general experience. Uh, but because of that resentment, things can be said that can cause trouble for those who are elders. Sometimes it's due to what's taught or how things are done. Uh, sometimes it doesn't, uh, someone doesn't like what someone teaches. They perhaps hold a different position or personal preferences. They have a different set of priorities for how the pastor or elders should spend their time, so they may react negatively, maybe with some passive aggression or actual anger. Then it becomes a campaign to discredit the pastor. Sometimes it's a result of rebuke or a call to accountability, just that, you know, people tend to resent that and resist it, and if correction is needed, it's typically unlikely that they're going to respond in a spirit-controlled manner because they weren't operating in a spirit-controlled manner. So when you have to come and, and confront sin, then usually the answer back is not spirit-controlled. People resist biblical authority. They resist biblical teaching now more than ever. Uh, they strike out for revenge to someone who's called them to accountability before God it, or react in anger against the one who's pointed out where real change needs to occur. And, and sometimes it's because a person is a plant or a pawn of Satan or demons and that could be all the time in, in one way or another. And you're saying, well, really, a, a plant from Satan or the demons? Uh, yeah, I think the Scripture is full of those examples, but I think none more clear than one we're going to look at in not too long. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 really talks about this very thing. And we'll look at it much more closely when we get there. But just this, verse 24 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when, when wronged with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Now, let me, let me pause right there as I did with first service. I'd like you to take that into your lap, okay? I'd like you to think, okay, I can't be quarrelsome. I have to be kind to everybody. I have to be able to teach, and I have to be patient when people say really bad things about me and I'm wronged. How you do? How's that work for you? Because you realize it's just one standard of godliness, right? I mean, I, I have to do this, and you're like, yeah, that's how the pastor should act. But so do you, see? So, so I would say, how do you react when you're, when you're wronged? I mean, you are actually in the right, and somebody is, is saying something about you or to you, which is wrong, and you have to react to that. Verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So in gentleness and in kindness and not quarrelsome and patient when wrong things are said, then you have to still correct the people who are in the wrong. Do you see? If perhaps, it says, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So what's the problem? They need to repent. They don't have a knowledge of the truth. They've departed from it. You see? And the outward evidence there is they're in opposition to those who are leading the church. Verse 26, and they may come to their senses because they've departed from them and escape the snare of the devil which they're caught in, having been held captive by him to do his will. They perhaps think they're doing the will of the Lord, right? I would think that most people would think if they're in opposition to the elder, that they would be doing the will of the Lord. So along with giving some great instruction to those who lead, it gives a rather shocking revelation about those who oppose pastors and elders after correcting those in opposition. Anti-diatithemi, a long compound verb which just means against, is anti, and then 
a covenant or testimony, which is dithymi. So the idea is, just describes those who won't get along. It doesn't describe what actually it is they're disagreeing about. It's just they're being disagreeable. They're saying the opposite or something else besides what the elder says. And those things like that can be antagonistic. So that can take in a lot of situations that we've already mentioned. That can be um, resenting the position. That can be just disagreeing with how things are taught or what they're taught or how things are done. And it can be in relation to a rebuke or a call to accountability, even though this is going to cause another one to happen. So after the correction occurs, I have to wait and pray that God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. He can grant repentance. They might not accept repentance or pursue it, right? So there's always the volitional response that would be, I'm never going to agree with the pastor and I'm never going to stop being antagonistic to him. And so then they've been taken captive by Satan to do his will. Do you see? It's pretty interesting. Now, you're going to pray that they're going to come to the knowledge of the truth and to come to their senses and realize that they've been held captive in a snare of the devil to do the devil's will. That's very shocking, see? That's very shocking. So one way or another, and perhaps often in combination of motives that we've talked about already, put together uh, with 2 Timothy 2.25, that might result in the pastor or elder being falsely accused or slandered or misrepresented. And because it is a consecrated trust to be called into the ministry, actually called, not choosing it as a, an alternative vocation, but the Lord has actually called them in, the man is typically a target. And, and, a, and the effectiveness of the ministry is largely dependent on the one who is in the pulpit's integrity and his believability and his consistency and upon his purity and his holiness and his virtue of life, which is why the scriptures hold these things up as the measuring rod, the outcome of his family, those kinds of things are the measuring rod for whether or not you have to come up under him. If he, if he is in line with those things, then that's what you have to do, you see? And so if he, uh, if he could be attacked at some point we just mentioned and discredited, realizing his effectiveness is going to be largely dependent on his integrity and his believability and his consistency. So if that becomes undermined, people won't trust him. And the net effect may be to totally end his ministry. John Calvin, reflecting on his pastoral experience in Geneva, mused this way, as soon as any charge is made against ministers of the word, it's believed as surely and firmly as if it had already been proven. This happens, he says, not only because a higher standard of integrity is required from them, but because Satan makes most people, in fact, nearly everyone, over-credulous, so that without investigation, they eagerly condemn their pastors whose good name they ought to be defending, end quote. I think he's a little touchy on that subject. What do you think? Probably had some experience there in Geneva. So Paul starts out this topic with this sentence. He says this, he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, first of all, please notice, again, the target of the instruction, it's talking about the office of elder. That's what we've been talking about here. Then it says this, do not receive, that's in, with the negative adverb, the compound Greek verb, paradekami. Para is with or beside, and decamy is to take with the hand. So it has to do with receiving or giving access or giving ear to something. And, and uh, it is present, passive, imperative, with a negative adverb to it. In other words, under no circumstances are you to give ear to it or take it by the hand or receive it. So what is to be outright rejected? An accusation, it says, against an elder. 
categoria, that's the noun, it's where we get our word category, but the idea is this, it doesn't matter what it is, it doesn't matter what the, if you will, category is, the word has the idea of something public, it's derived from, from the, uh, the Greek agora, which is public, a place of public speaking, and so you put it all together and you've got a kata against, it just signifies that you're speaking against somebody publicly. Typically that occurs in the church with slander, it occurs with gossip, it occurs with letters and emails. Those are very popular today, circulating them and so that the elder doesn't receive it, but everyone else does. So very popular, but obviously what's strictly and categorically forbidden. If it's something against the elder, it's to be ignored, that's it. Do not receive. Don't join hands with it. Don't come together. Don't take it in your hand. Present passive imperative. Not investigated, not entertained, ignored. People can and often will say all kinds of things to falsely accuse him and try to ruin his ministry. And so principle number four is very clear. In relating to elders, an unsubstantiated accusation against a pastor or elder is to be what? Rejected. To put it simply, one of the best ways you can protect your pastors and elders is with a deaf ear to accusation. And it's in the imperative, so it's not optional for you to do it or not do it. It's that simple. Uh, when a man is placed into spiritual leadership, he has to anticipate that hateful, jealous, deceived, uninformed, or simply sinful people will falsely accuse him and try to ruin his ministry. People talk about, you know, well, this person said this about me and, I, you know, it really hurt my feelings or whatever. And I, I typically say this, listen, I understand that feeling. In fact, I don't think anybody understands that feeling better than I do because no one, no one receives more accusations both publicly and under the radar than those who stand in the pulpit. No one. Because you're always to blame. Whatever happens, well, it must be the pastor's fault. That typically is how it is. We understand that, okay? So, so hateful, jealous, deceived, uninformed, and all the things we talked about, falsely accused, try to ruin the ministry, and people can and often will say anything and everything, and I've heard all kinds of things in my time. This is standard behavior with reference to spiritual leaders. And Paul understands this himself very well, doesn't he? If you were with us in our, in our, as we went through the two letters of First and Second Corinthians, you understand, unfortunately, he always had to defend himself over and over again, and all kinds of false accusations are written down for us to actually read. In Jesus' Sermon on the Beatitudes from Luke 6, 26, he says something that's, that can be moderately comforting to me it, it, to some extent and to those who serve in the ministry. He says this, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. And I say this is moderately comforting, okay? So anytime you're falsely accused, it's pretty tough to swallow, right? And the first thing you want to do is defend yourself. Uh, I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not supposed to do that. And so I understand the hurt that comes along. This is somewhat comforting, which is, in other words, it's likely if you're not a false teacher that there will be a regular stream of negative things said for any number of reasons that we listed. And it won't be there if you're false. So you just transplant that another way. You look at some of these massive mega churches with false teachers who stand in front of them and everybody loves them. The media loves them. The world loves them. The congregations, 80,000 people love them. What's the problem there? And there are other problems. If you listen to the doctrine, you understand what's going on there. But the main problem is, woe unto you when all spin speak what? Well of you. Because as soon as you begin to teach the word verse by verse, what are you going to do? You're going to come contrary to people and where they are. And that's difficult. See? And when you work your way verse by verse, you're going to come into a lot of that stuff. You can't just skip around and, and preach the things that make people happy. 
It's the old saying, a lie travels around the world while the truth is putting its boots on. I mean, it's that kind of thing. John Lennon said, quote, being honest may not get you a lot of friends, but it'll always get you the right ones, end quote. Not saying that a pastor elder is perfect. You were waiting for me to say that, weren't you? There are no perfect men, none. So when a man is responsible for teaching and preaching and is worthy of honor, it doesn't mean he has an absolutely perfect reputation with everyone. I think you can understand that, right? I think you can understand it. I, I'm not sure that it computes into how we react. See, That when we interact with the Beatitude verse, I think it helps us. And certainly part of honor is to realize the difficult effort that is involved in ministry day to day and, and be able to distinguish between gossip and false accusations and lies and reality. And if our adversary can't cause the man to run afoul of the qualifications for leadership, which are the objective standards for which you evaluate him, then he may use someone to try to discredit him. Spurgeon is noted for saying, very often men will hunt down those sins in others which they gladly shelter in themselves, end quote. And people do that often, don't they? It's easy to point out sins in someone else and you're sheltering them in yourself. And not just that, it reminds us of Jesus saying, hey, you know, before you pick out the splinter in someone else's eye, what should you do? You pull the big board out of your eye. So part of honor is certainly to protect and insulate the pastor and elder with a deaf congregation in the sense of gossip and slander and slanted stories and whatnot and unsubstantiated accusations. And when, when I first come to a church, and our deacons can tell you this, I go through this with the deacons. The best way to stop the rumor mill, which is always an undercurrent in an undisciplined church, is as soon as someone comes to you and says, I need to tell you something about this person, whoever that is. It might be me. It might be someone coming to me, talking to, about you. As soon as you hear that, I need to talk to you about something about this. What do you say? Stop. This is not between me and you. This is between you and that person, right? That's the first thing you do. That's what we expect among each other, don't we? But that's precisely what the scripture says. If you have a trouble with someone, you go to them, right? Or you just forgive them outright. Because love covers a multitude of. So you see, so it's it's one of those things where um, you want to protect those who are in leadership over you from slanted stories, unsubstantiated accusations, and, and that's pretty important and it's pretty clear. You don't want that going on, and you don't want and you want to teach the church early on. This is how you stop the rumor mill. I don't want someone coming to me and saying, I'm having a problem with this person. My first thing I'm going to say to you is this. Have you gone to that person? And 99 out of 10, 100 times it is, no. I thought I should come to you. It's pretty serious. I'm sorry. First of all, you don't know if it's serious. Number two, you need to make sure you talk to them first. This might just be a disagreement. It might be a conflict of, of your personalities. It could be just a way you would do life as opposed to the way they would do life. It has nothing to do with me at all. It has everything to do with you and that individual. And if that just began to happen on a general basis, that by itself would relieve so much stress in the lives of those who oversee the church. Now, let's look at the next part. Because, of course, Paul is not saying that elders are to be beyond accusation if the accusation is legitimate, okay? The protection and the honor is not supposed to be a protection for evil men. 
So in verse 19 it says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, mark this, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So the only time you ever listen to it, which doesn't make it true, okay, but the only time you'd ever do anything but dismiss it, the only time you do anything except just dismiss it out of hand, you don't listen to it, you don't grab it by the hand, you don't give it an ear, would be when it comes to you with a force of two or three trustworthy witnesses. So that is our principle number five. In relating to an elder, the only time an accusation can be entertained against an elder is when it's reported by two or three trustworthy witnesses and then properly investigated. Now, obviously, the intent of two or three witnesses is always a confirmation. This is not new to the New Testament. It's not new to the Old Testament. In Matthew 18, we have been through this passage, Matthew 18, and, and, and discipline with the church together as a whole. We teach it through in the Be the Church class so people will know coming in that we practice this accountability both directions. And so we make that clear. And if you've been through that Be the Church class, I apologize. Some of this is going to be a review to you. But there is a guide there for confronting what may appear to be an erring believer. So if you believe that there's a sin, and I always say this, chapter and verse. We're not talking about a disagreement in personality. We're not talking about a disagreement in philosophy. We're not talking about a disagreement in what's being taught or how you would live their life if you were they. So that's not it, okay? This is, has to do with a chapter and verse, actual sinful behavior. If you think that's going on, you go to him. And keeping Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 always in mind. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So this gives a great moderating effect on this idea that you've reached a certain level of holiness that other people haven't reached. Because you haven't. So you go with a spirit of humility and privately investigate. And here's the thing. You may be wrong. Maybe you're right. If you're right, you attempt to restore them. That's always the issue. If he is in sin and he won't repent, then verse 16 of Matthew 18 says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, People always ask this question, so I'll just answer it right now. How do I get witnesses? You don't. You don't get witnesses. Because if you go around asking people if they know anything about this certain thing, what are you doing? You're gossiping. Do you understand that? This is very important. This is where the church misses many times what's supposed to go on. I've sat in meetings where somebody has come to me with a witness to bring something to me that they thought was a sin issue, which I'd never spoken to that individual before. And now we've got two people here. So what went on? A whole discussion about what we think pastor's doing, you see? And so I pointed that out right away. Hold on. This isn't the way we do this, right? This, we do this some other way. And I don't mean to use myself only as an illustration, but I just want to see you to see how vulnerable we are. But this goes on and gets repeated over and over in churches across the country and around the world. So you don't go and get any witnesses because that's gossiping. Does it mean you go tell others what's going on so they can help you? No, and for the same reasons. Now, just as a quick illustration, and you've been through this already, but I want to, I want to draw the, your attention to this, okay? And I think you'll make sense of this perfectly because it makes it clear what we're talking about. 
So here in Deuteronomy 19.15 is where we get all these instructions that Jesus is passing on to the church. And so he says this, and you're going to hear much the same language as we work our way through this letter to Timothy. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be confirmed. Now let's stop right there. Let me ask you something. What's required? Is it required that the individual who witnessed it go out and find some other more people and talk about it with them and bring them? Well, let's put it in a court scenario. So you stand up, you're, a, you're an eyewitness, and, and, and uh, the prosecutor's inter, inter, uh, uh, interviewing you, and then the defense is interviewing you, and they say, Mr. Parker, what did you see? And I say what I saw, and then I say this, and not only that, but um, Joe saw it too. What will, what will the, the attorney say? That is what? Hearsay, right? Does, does that count? No. I told Joe about it. No. Joe comes up and says, well... I was talking with Pastor Parker about it, and, and, and so now I know about it. Does that count? In this scenario right here. Of course it doesn't. It's, in fact, it's ridiculous for us to think about it that way. And yet, that's precisely how we manage church discipline many times. Precisely like that. And then look at this, verse 16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, now what do we have? It's a straight up liar. He's making it up. For one reason or another. Then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days, and the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, mark it, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Now, let's pause right there. How much restriction on what's being said would be removed? All that taken away if you knew that whatever you were trying to accomplish for the other person got carried out on you. Right? If this was a capital crime and there's more than one witness but one's a false witness and of course with a capital crime that person who did it would be executed and you turn over and you say, okay, this guy is found to be a false witness. Guess what happens to him? He gets executed. So there's a deterrence there, right? It would be a little bit of deterrence. Like, I don't want to open my mouth and, and, and say a lie, okay? But how can you run a society if you don't set it up like this? So that's what the Lord's doing, giving them the law so they can be fair about how they judge what's going on around them. You shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And mark this, the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Now you're going to see here very similar language. You can see it's all being drawn from there. So these are people who've witnessed the issue themselves. That's who we're talking about. And they will go to the individual themselves and mark it. The Lord always puts those people together. He always does. 30 years of ministry, I've seen this happen over and over again. The Lord puts it together. The Lord makes it happen. When we begin to do things like the Lord desires for us to do them, He makes it happen. And these will be Galatians 6, 1 kind of people. They will get together sooner or later. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says this. The Lord is tolerant, kind, and patient, and it is His patience that leads us to repentance. What's the issue there? Is the Lord quick to put you to death for your sin? Is He quick to punish you? Good thing he's not, right? Good thing he's not quick to punish us. Because Pastor Parker wouldn't be standing here. And you wouldn't be sitting there. What is the Lord? He is long-suffering and patient. What are we? Really, really impulsive and impatient. So that's why it's there. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. What's his promise? Well, in this context, it's to punish evildoers. It's to punish those who have rejected Christ. But is patient towards you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So what's the issue there for the Lord? Long-suffering, patience, waiting to see what's going on. Do you see? So all this is part of our understanding as we examine these things. We're always in a hurry to move. And the Lord's always patient. But always the two or three witnesses are part of the process so that the sin can be confirmed and confirm the responsive attitude, whether it's of repentance or non-repentance. That's the whole issue in Matthew 18. And so the evidence has to be sufficient and practically certain. Otherwise, there is to be what? No action. You don't take a hold of it. You don't give an ear to it. You don't listen to it. You don't move on it. You put a stop to the whole thing, see? So put these all together. The church is never to receive an accusation against the pastor. The church is not to entertain it or to investigate it or look into it. The church is to ignore it and take no notice of it. The church is to end it at the beginning. The only exception to that reaction would be if it has been confirmed by two or three significant, credible witnesses. So that's all there. Why? Because pastor elders are never to be in the... In the power of trivial, frivolous accusations of unhappy people who didn't get what they wanted or were very often didn't understand what went on in a certain situation concerning someone else. And can I tell you anecdotally, that second one is almost always the one that rises to the surface the most. What do I mean by that? I just mean that somebody thought that I did something with somebody else and they didn't know what the story was. And I'm not allowed to go tell you what the story is. Did you know that? You've got teachers in here, right? And so here's the scenario that plays out pretty often. Laura's working through one right now uh, because of a big letter that came on uh, over the weekend. But here's it is. So some parent will say to teachers and throw everybody under the bus, you know, you guys are not doing your job. This person is bothering my daughter and there's never any repercussions and he's a troublemaker and my daughter, of course, is perfect. And why don't you do anything? Nobody ever does anything. Gets away with it. And so they write it to all the teachers and the teachers are like, yeah, I know this person. They sit like two feet from my desk and they always get in trouble when they do something wrong. But I'm not going to tell you that. Why? Because what I do with someone else's kid is not your business. See, and, and what I have to do in the pastorate and what elders have to do in the pastorate with someone who's erring is not your business because then I fall into the error of what? Gossiping about them. Do you understand? But most of the main problems that go on inside a church is someone thinking the pastor must have been so mean to them they left because that's what that person's saying. You see? And this is really important. It's why that's in the command form here. Don't entertain that. You don't know what you're talking about. You see? You don't know what you're talking about. You're not supposed to be in the power of trivial, frivolous accusations of unhappy people. They didn't understand a certain situation. They didn't understand and get what they wanted. You know, they come to the pastor or elder's office and they say, I think we should do ministry like this. Well, I appreciate that. Here's why we don't do it like that. Here's the biblical model that I follow. So we probably won't do it that way. And they go out of the office and what do they say? Pastor never listens to me. He only does what he wants to do. They missed all of the justification. They missed all the underpinnings of the reason why we do it that way, the experience perhaps or whatever it is, and, and they just go away with that, see. There's where all of the, most of the difficulties in that church are connected to that. 
Because if he's in the power of this trivial, frivolous types of accusations of unhappy people, listen, he's going to have to go around to people justifying himself who really shouldn't be to people who are what sadly are eager and willing to believe anything. He's got to go around and find everybody who's unhappy. Do you know how difficult that, do you know how difficult that is? It's just like, oh my goodness. Well, they were unhappy. Well, how was I supposed to know that? I mean, if they're unhappy with me, aren't they responsible to come and say, I'm unhappy? And then if, if I say, well, this is why we do it, isn't it okay for you to say okay and submit to those who are in leadership over you? Isn't that how it's supposed to go? But very often it doesn't go that way, see? And many elders have to spend way too much time chasing down all of that. And because if every accusation necessitated a full investigation, the elder would have little time for anything else, right? Have you ever been in churches like that? You know, one of the first things you have to do in a church, you have to figure out where the, where's the undercurrent. And you have to cut that undercurrent off. You have to change the path of that. Otherwise, you, you're going to have a very short tenure there. And even charges of which an elder is acquitted. So in other words, there are two or three witnesses. You, you investigate the whole thing. You realize, you know, uh, there wasn't anything there. If the rumor mill is there, listen, um, people may still remember that as him as the pastor who had some sort of trouble. And giving goes away and people move away. And listen, it just undermines the whole thing, doesn't it? Just derails it. Doesn't take much to derail it. Satan knows precisely what to do, and he knows exactly how to take people captive and hold them and use them. So perhaps maybe you can see the wisdom in all of these very direct commands. Paul certainly could, as could Timothy and some of the elders there in Ephesus who were doing what they should do and dealing with all of this, see. And so, so mark this. On the other hand, before we move on to the next verse, I think it's important to raise up elders who are worthy of that kind of honor and protection, Okay. Let's just say that, okay? It's got to be a guy who's actually called. It can't be somebody who was going to be an engineer and just decided, now I'm going to be a pastor. It can't be a guidance counselor, four sons. This happened at least four times, maybe more. Well, your dad's a pastor. You should just be one. Uh, no, I don't think you understand how that works. Uh, thanks, though. You know, so the idea is for those who are really called, those who have really been put in, in that spot, see, those guys need to be brought up and disciplined and discipled so that they understand that they have to conduct themselves in a manner that's worthy of honor. Do you see? You have to, if you have to line yourself with 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have to align yourself with Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5. You, you align yourself that way, you're worthy of the respect and you're worthy of the honor. And then, and then people begin, the church begins to be wise about how this is supposed to go and begin to defend uh, those who lead them, see? You have to understand what it means to keep yourself unable to be called out. So, so what happens to the elder who has multiple trustworthy witnesses who've come forward, it's been investigated, and he's not repented from an actual sin issue? Look at verse 20. Probably getting to the point you really, this is the part you wanted to see, right? <laughs> those, those, <laughs> that's sarcastic. I shouldn't do that. Um, those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And so when you say those who, uh, who are we talking about? Well, we're just talking about the pastor elders. They've been the topic all along here. So what are they found to be doing? Continuing in sin. Hamar to notice having a portion, present active participle. So this is what continues to be, this is the idea, their habitual action. 
And that goes very well with the tense voice and mood of the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, which are present active indicative. This is the actual reality of the individual's life when you're examining him. Here, the actual continual reality, having a portion in, if you will, sinfulness is the reality of his life. And if that is what's found out in the investigation of the witnesses, two or three witnesses, then what happens? Rebuke, it says, in the presence of all. And that word rebuke is used 17 times in the New Testament. Rebuke, convince, convict, refute, confute, all those ways it's translated. You get the essence of it. Again, the verb is in the imperative. What it basically says is there's absolutely no immunity for sin. Protection up to a point, honor up to a point, and then the point is that point, continued sin. And there's tremendous vulnerability there, beloved. And the sins are not categorized here. If you want to know the list of sins, all you have to do is go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'd like you to turn there. Just flip back two, pa- two chapters, if you would, and, uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and reverse everything, okay? Because remember, when we went through there, you realize it says, uh, those who desire the office of elder desire a good thing there to be above reproach. And what we saw there was, when you say above reproach, that just means that everything that follows shows what it means to not be above reproach. So if it's reversed, then you wouldn't be qualified. So, in other words, to be above reproach, let's flip it. Nope, he's got lots of handles to grab. Because remember, to be above reproach is to be without any handles. You can't grab it. Nothing that stands out that you can grab a hold of. Nope, he's got lots of handles to grab. Husband and one wife, nope, he's a philanderer and he's immoral. And perhaps this is typically the most obvious one that we see all the time, immorality that goes on. And, and temperate, remember that's, that's uh, without wine, which means he's not a drinker. Nope, he's a drinker. He takes in, he takes in drink. Prudent, and nope, he's not that way. He's not the way he conducts his life. He doesn't have a good reputation. His children are disobedient. Uh, as a young children, we see in 1 Timothy 3, as older children in Titus 1, uh, they act as if they've never known the Lord. He, he loves money. Um, he doesn't have a good reputation outside the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just flip them all, and then you get the idea of what this is, what's going to be investigated. And I did that just to be clear because there's just no way you could be partial for one sin as over and against another one, see. Anything that's a sin, which that man continues to practice and continues to do, is reason for him to be included in those who continue in sin. And that is principle number six in relating to elders. If he is found to be continuing continuing in unrepentant sin after being carefully examined by two or three witnesses, there is no immunity. He is to be publicly rebuked. And as you can see, these are not the normal steps of discipline that we find in Matthew 18, right? Because after two or three witnesses approach someone, what happens next? It goes to the church, and then the church is a combined godly influence, sees the individual and is able to help them, try to restore them as the church, praying for them. You see them in the grocery store, right? And so here's the story. Hey, I haven't seen you at Brian for a while. Well, pastor was really mean to me, and people were, not, were unkind to me, and I decided not to go again. Oh, I'm so sorry. That really stinks. You know, pastor shouldn't be mean to you. No, that's not what happened. Why? We told the church, and what does the church know? No, you left your husband, and now you're, you're living with another person. No, you divorced your wife and now you're chasing after someone else or whatever, you see. Now we know the story and you just say, no, it wasn't like that. You know, actually what happened was this and we're praying for you and the path that you're on leads to your destruction. We want you to come back, be restored, see. 
And that's the same way here. Except here, you skip over the tell the church part. What do you do? You just go straight to rebuke. To call into account. To show one his fault. And this is just as important as bringing a sinning member before the congregation. It establishes what the issue is. And what the qualifications were supposed to be. And because the elder is supposed to hold up the one example of godliness that everyone is to aspire to, mark it, his rebuke is quicker because his culpability is what? Greater. See? He's supposed to be the example. Now he's not. And people ask me all the time this. Does the pastor elder have to step down? And the answer is yes, he does. Because the qualifications are right there in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And mark this, beloved. I mean, this makes perfect sense. If you're no longer qualified because of continued sin, then you can't serve in that position any more than you could have assumed it to begin with had you not been aligned with the qualifications. Does that make sense? If you didn't align with it to begin with, you couldn't have been put in there. And if you become out of line with it, you can't stay there. That just makes sense to us, see? And beloved, I know that that is considered in today's modern church as a really hard line. And uncompassionate and judgmental and all of that. In fact, it, when you speak the truth in love and when you clearly teach the word of God, you're the heretic now, right? Because what we have now in progressive Christianity is just every belief is affirmed, right? If someone truly believes it, then it, it's possible that that might be true. So we certainly can't condemn that position. So now we got rid of all false teaching, didn't we? That's taught in seminaries right now. We, we can't say this because somebody might believe this other thing. So and this might be right. Instead of just saying, no, that isn't right. That's not what the language says. That isn't making a good fit in studying to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. That's just, it means whatever you think it means. So as soon as we say this, we're the ones who create the problem. See, you're the uncompassionate one. You're the judgmental one. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just reading what it says. This is what we have to do, see. People will say this. Well, what if he repents? Well, that makes no difference because the point is the credibility is forfeited. Do you see? The credibility is forfeited. Continuing in that position has forfeited the credibility. And then people say, well, you mean there's no restoration? Well, we're not talking about restoration here, are we? Well, what are we talking about? Passage is talking about a ministry as a pastor elder. He ought to be loved. I think we can understand that, right? We understand that? Uh, hopefully he could stay in the same congregation and be loved and nurtured and restored to a place of usefulness to the Lord. But it's doubtful, and of course all these situations have to be examined, but it's doubtful he could ever be a pastor again or an elder again, depending, of course, on the nature of the sin and its impact. For instance, if he's not managing his household and his children are out of control and he begins to do that and he reigns them in and things come under control, then it's possible that he could be restored, right? Because now his present activity, that is his life. But there could be things that would damage it beyond repair. It's not possible for you to go back. Do you see? So these are on case by case and you have to examine these. But in general, 1 Timothy 3.2 must be the overriding factor. We saw this a few minutes ago. An overseer then must be above reproach. And he no longer meets that requirement. And so he has to be out of the ministry anyway. And so there has to be this public rebuke so that, mark this, 
Everyone will know why he has to be gone. Otherwise, the rumor mill just starts that destroys the church. Just like Matthew 18. See, and, and churches make this mistake all the time. What do they do? The guy is in, caught in immorality. And so we just tell the church, he's, he's moving on from this church. And he's going to go somewhere else. And what happens? He goes somewhere else and does precisely what he did in the first church, right? Because if the church worked like it was supposed to do, when he went out the door, there wouldn't be any other door opened. Would there? No, because you've disqualified yourself and you're not in line with the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Do you see? And so you've got to keep the rumor mill under control. They have to know. That's why Paul says very categorically it has to be this way. Just like in Matthew 18, you tell the congregation. So everybody knows, not just the big meanie elders, but this is what happened in the life. They wouldn't repent and this is what we're going to tell you. And so you will know what's going on. And of course... I just say this again as a uh, disclaimer. Here I am as an elder telling you how you have to relate to elders. And again, when you have multiple elders in place who can deal with the issues in a godly manner, that makes it much, much, much more smooth, that kind of transition. Because those guys know what it takes. They know what it takes to rein your life in. They know what's required if you're, if you're serving in the office of elder much more than the average person. And so this is always the scary part of the passage because on the one hand, you have a, a twofold honor and you have to protect me. And on the other hand, I have to keep my life lined up with the qualifications, see? So I just tell you that because, I mean, this is hard to teach to you because I understand it puts me very, it makes it very vulnerable out there. And you know precisely what, the, what should happen if I have a problem. Now, let's look at the last part of the verse because... Not only does it make sense of the issues before the congregation, so everything is firmly established and clear. Verse 20 says this, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, and mark this, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And that's principle number seven in relating to elders. The public portion of the rebuke is there so others may profit. It's always the same, right? We saw it in Deuteronomy, didn't we? Just a minute ago. You do this so that everyone will know you shouldn't be a false witness, right? And then we saw it in Matthew 18, you do it so others will fear. We saw it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember when there was, an el- there was someone in the church who was sinning uh, and they put him out, right? And so others will be fearful of doing the same thing. It's always that case, see, that the public portion is there so others may profit. And it appears that when it says the rest, it would certainly be directed, I think, towards the other elders because this is the point of the whole thing. And it renews the effort of each individual elder to restrain themselves and rein the life in and all of that. And the people of the church also benefit from it, though. And I think this is really important because this is where the church really messes up. It recreates this renewed sense of respect for the church. And like the other elders, they're going to search their own lives. Mark this, when they see that even leaders are not exempt from discipline for sin. You see, this is really important because this is what gets skipped over a lot. So there's this double standard because really it's so annoying, isn't it? If there's a double standard, it's kind of what the problem with our current administration is, right? Because you've got a whole group of people who continue breaking the law over and over again and they're never brought to, to justice. And yet the average person does what they do and what are they? they're in prison in a very short amount of time. That's just difficult to take, isn't it? So there shouldn't be any of that in the church. They'll be fearful of sinning. And again, this is, this is so unpopular in the modern church. And we really run afoul of progressive Christianity that really affirms every belief and every take on every verse that's possible. But this is just so clear. So others will see it and be fearful. We see it over and over again. All the verses we read that supported this. Fearful of what? Well, being caught up in continuous unrepentant sinfulness. Right? That's embarrassing, isn't it? 
I mean, we don't want to be caught up there. We want to think about what are the repercussions of this decision I'm going to make that should be in your mind all the time. It's always a battle, isn't it? It's always a battle. You hold this truth in a, in a fractured earthen jar, right? And you've got to work all the time in reining the body in. And ultimately fearful of a holy God who has the right to deal with our sinfulness any way he wishes to deal with it. Do you understand that? That is really the foundation of all grace. That at the bottom of it, we fear the Lord. Why? That's the beginning of wisdom. He has the right to deal with our sinfulness any way he wants. If we name his name and we're his child, then he has the right to discipline us, doesn't he? However he wants to, to correct our action. That is the bottom line for us. That is the foundation on which we stand. Now, as we love the Lord and we respond to him in love, it becomes a love relationship, doesn't it? That's what you want with your kids, too. You start with corporal punishment. You help them learn how to obey. And as they grow up, you want that relationship with you to just turn into a relationship of they respond in obedience because they love you, right? And you tell them what to do because you love them and want the best for them. But ultimately, when they're little, they should be concerned that you might spank them, okay? That's legit. And that's a biblical way to approach child rearing. But it works the same here. And like Matthew 18, the process creates this healthy, respectful concern over being publicly rebuked and how it would affect you and your family and everyone else. Think about what your kids are going to say if you, if you decide to do opposite of what you taught them. If you're an elder, think about what the church is going to think after you've taught them over and over and over again. And then you fill in the exact same thing that you taught against. See, this should be always in your mind. And this is where today's church has lost its nerve, I think, both with members who are, are in continued sinfulness and leadership that sins with impunity. And then move on to another church and just do the same thing there. A lack of courage here, beloved, is not loving. It's unloving. Unloving of Christ and the church that he died for, unloving of the offender. And surprisingly, that is precisely what Paul warns against in the next verse. Here's where we're going to wrap up. I know we're a little bit long because in case you're tempted to do nothing, Timothy, in case church, you're tempted, you're tempted to do nothing. In Matthew 18, in case you're tempted to do nothing, it, it takes in all of this. He says in verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. Again, there's that partiality thing, right? There's nothing more irritating than watching someone get punished for something other people get away with with impunity. That's precisely what should never happen in the church. Diligence and fairness are two words that come into play here. Don't waffle. You can just hear Paul tell Timothy, don't waffle. It doesn't matter who it is. Literally, on this account, I give you my words. God, Jesus, and the holy angels are watching all of this. And that's, that's principle number eight in relating to elders. All of the instructions for relating to elders are weighty matters. And the very ones who will judge us are watching what we do. I think you can catch that. Paul's force and passion is here because all this had been so badly handled in Ephesus. And Calvin emphasized this point again. He says, quote, And indeed, the man who is not shaken out of his carelessness and laziness by the thought that the government of the church is conducted under the eye of God and the presence of Jesus and his angels must be worse than stupid, end quote. <laughs> That's so brutal, isn't it? He's talking to elders. He's like, do you not realize that everything you're doing is straight up in the presence of God and of Christ who died for the church and the holy angels? And what do they want the church more, to do more than anything? Be obedient, right? 
Paul knows that Timothy is somewhat timid. He's a little bit intimidated since he's the point man and it's the middle of a big mess. And so he says, you know, maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. Why? God's concerned with the purity of the church. Jesus is concerned with the purity of the church. The holy angels are concerned with the purity of the church. And, and like in other places, the angels are waiting to see the obedience of the church. He gives instruction, right, to the church. Remember, Paul tells about what women are to do and how men are to function and, and who's the head and all that stuff. And he says, because of the created order and because of the angels. It's not the first time he brings the angels into the mix. They're always watching. They don't get to, they don't get to experience transformation and salvation. But they're watching. What does that look like? The Holy One came to a wicked earth and gave himself for the church. How are we to respond? That's it. See, that's the passion that's there. I just think it's just so, it's just so overwhelming to think about it that way. I was going to end with Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1. I'll, I'll read it next week because we're out of time. But really the issue, listen, Paul says, Timothy and the other churches on down from Ephesus. Listen, the angels are waiting to see your obedience. The angels are waiting for your obedience, right? And so the question we have to ask about the clear teaching of all the New Testament is this. Who are we going to please? Who are we going to please? Even in the hard things. And beloved, there's, there's, never, there's never been a time when we've had to do discipline in the church where I didn't wish that the Lord would say, would have said, I'll just take care of this. I know that's going to be hard for you. I'll just do it. He never says that, see. He doesn't say it here either. Just gives the church instruction. Remember 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. That you're going to know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith, which is the church, the pillar, and the support of the truth. It is the foundation on which all truth is built. Do it this way, see. So we really don't have a choice, do we? So let's bow and be dismissed in prayer if you would. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together. We thank you for your words, which because of the way that you've written them and your authority strike us right to the heart. They, they point out uh, attitudes we carry. They point out uh, biases. They point out um, hidden things that we've held in our own heart. Uh, our hurts, the things that we've experienced, the things that we've done. And, and, but what's so great about this is that your son Jesus sits at your right hand and constantly makes intercession for us. When we teach the word clearly, there's a response, an opportunity, and we can come and we can repent and we can ask for forgiveness. And you're faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so for that, Father, we are so grateful. You are constantly a God who desires to restore, a God that desires to give us another chance to help us to walk with you. The angels watch for our obedience, help us to be obedient. And in all of these things, as regardless of our experience in the past, this is the way things have to work. It draws us all straight in. It calls us into account the life and all that. And what you require, it's not perfection. We can't. We can't be perfect inside of this body that we're in. But you desire for us to learn what's pleasing to you. To learn what's pleasing to you. To grow more and more in faith. And Father, we pray that will be the end of what we're reading. Not all of this will apply to every person. Not all of it will be new to people. But whatever it is, Father, and however you wish to work, you always have, uh, you don't need it, but you always have uh, our desire to see you do just that. Work in every life today, Father, every way and every heart, every way that you have given your word for it to be responded to. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake, and all God's people said, amen.